Welcome to the Breath Magazine podcast. Learn more about Breath Magazine and sign up for our newsletter to receive the latest news and updates at our website, breathmagazine.com. And now for today's episode. Today we're going to preach about spiritual gifts. So if you have your Bible, turn over to Ephesians 4. And while you're turning there, I just want you, well, let me give some backdrop to where we're headed today. If you look across the spans of the uh, body of Christ today, what you see is really kind of like one kind of preacher, one kind of, quote, ministry gift, and that is the pastor. In fact, in the last 10 to 15 years, what you've seen is the rise of what you might call the uber pastor. Um, It's these pastors who uh, they preach from a central location, but they have kind of franchised their ministries out where you have multiple campuses they're preaching on screens, and um, and you don't see too much of any other type of preacher or what you might call ministry. Question is whether or not that is copacetic with what we see in Scripture or what the intention of the Lord was when he ascended on high. And that's one thing we're going to examine today. So, <clears throat> turning over to Ephesians Let me start with verse 7, but we're going to concentrate on verses 8 and 11. So verse 7, Paul writes, But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. So every believer has a measure of grace. The question is, what do you do with that grace, or how do you build up the grace? And this is where he gets into spiritual gifts. In verse 8, he says this, Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive, and he gave gave gifts to his people. Now, if you have a modern Bible, you're going to see that when you look down, that Paul is actually quoting or paraphrasing or recasting a scripture from the Old Testament. Now, that's really interesting because, you know, in my personal experience, over the last 25, 30 years, I've heard a lot of preaching on Ephesians 4, 8, but I've never heard anybody go back and investigate or examine the backdrop of where Paul is speaking. He is, uh, and I say recasting because it's not an exact, uh, it's not an exact quote of Psalm 68. But when you take a look at what Paul is doing in Ephesians 4.8, is that he is structuring Ephesians 4.8 based upon what he reads in what we find out to be Psalm 68. And so it's crucial to get an idea of what Psalm 68 is talking about in order to come back to the New Testament and really get a feeling or get an idea of where Paul is coming from when he says that Jesus ascended on high and he gave gifts to his people. So what I want to do is I want to flip over back to Psalm 68 so we can understand Paul's thinking in writing out this verse. So turn back over there. And what we're going to do is we're going to go through um, and summarize Uh, the first part of Psalm 68 to get to the crucial passage where Paul says, and he gave gifts to his people. 
Now, Psalm 68 is an interesting psalm because it is about the enthronement of God or the enthronement of Yahweh as king. Now, you can, you can read theologians, you can read the commentaries and everything else because none of them really know when this psalm ever came to pass. Where actually Yahweh, God, uh, was seated upon a throne as king. You know, uh, even though it is Old Testament. So it's not really historical. But you're going to see that actually it is historical in the way that Paul recasts it in the New Testament. So let's go through and summarize uh, some of the passages here leading up to uh, the gifting scripture. In Psalm 68, verses 1 through 5, what you see is the psalmist is giving praise to God as the incoming king. And uh, we're going to get to that, but let me read a few of the verses. Uh, the psalmist writes, Let God rise up, let his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, let the wicked perish before God. What this is talking about is God as a a victorious king, a victorious warrior, so to speak, driving out the enemies. Now, look at verse 3. It says, But let the righteous be joyful. Let them exult before God. Let them be jubilant with joy. Now, what's the context here? Well, you go back to ancient history to get the context, and that is this. You know, back in those days, there weren't any parliaments, there weren't any congregants, uh, <clears throat> congresses or what you might call as representative government as we think about it today. What you had back then were kings. The kings represented the people. The people were summed up in the king. The thing about it is there were kings who were oppressive and there's really nothing that the people could do about it except when you had an invading king come in and attacked the oppressors, and were victorious over the oppressors. Then the people were liberated because they had a new king, and that's what you see in verse 3. God has liberated the people of Israel. God has liberated, you know, those who were oppressed. There's a new king in town, and so the psalmist writes, but let the righteous be joyful, let them exult before God, let them be jubilant with joy. You've got a liberated people here, and that's what the psalm is talking about in this context here. Verse 4, sing praise to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides upon the clouds, his name is the Lord, be exultant before him. This is giving praise to the incoming king. Now let's go to verses 7 through 10. And what the psalmist does is he recounts God delivering the people of Israel from Egypt and coming up to Mount Sinai and leading them in the wilderness. Now, it's real short, but it's historical. He writes, O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain at the presence of God, the God of Sinai, at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You see, he's recounting the deliverance from Egypt, 
the, the children of Israel meeting Yahweh, meeting God at Mount Sinai, and then what? God leading them through the wilderness. Cloud by day, fire by night. And so you have this continuous praise about who God is as the incoming king. Now you skip down to verse 11, and the psalmist shifts to God winning Israel's battles. The Lord gives command. Great is the company of those who bore the tidings. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Verse 14, when the Almighty scatters kings there, snow fell on Zalman. What the psalmist is writing about there is, if you go back to the Old Testament, you know, there are, there are accounts after accounts where God is leading the children of Israel in battle and what the children of Israel win. So he's recounting that because what? This is all uh, in preparation for God ascending the throne on the mountain. Now, verse 15 is kind of interesting because he pivots here again, but he looks to the mountain of Bashan. He says, O mighty mountain, mountain of Bashan, O many peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O many peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode, where, where the Lord will reside forever? What is this mountain of Bashan? Well, you look in Canaanite history, um, Canaanite history shows that the Bashan region, or at least part of it, represented hell, the celestial and infernal abode of their deified dead kings. And actually, that's consistent with what you see in the Old Testament. The region of Bashan was known basically as the devil's territory, the devil's mountain. And so here, the, what the psalmist is doing is he's looking over to the mountain of Bashan, you know, in a mocking way and saying, why do you look with envy? at the mount that God desired for his abode, where the Lord will reside forever. It's a mocking of the mountain of Bashan, of the abode of the devil. Now, <clears throat> let me take you, uh, for instance, about Bashan. Let me take you to Psalm 22. Now, Psalm 22, if you remember, starts off with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know that those were the words of Jesus on the cross when he was being crucified. So what you have in Psalm 22 is that you have the prophetical voice of Jesus on the cross in that psalm. Basically, you have David looking through history, I mean looking through time, and he is prophesying about the words that Jesus was saying on the cross. Well, when you skip down to verse 12, you read this in Psalm 22. It said, Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. That is Christ on the cross talking about what? Talking about Bashan. So that gives you the context of Psalm 68 and the mountain of Bashan, where the psalmist says, Oh, why, why are you envying? Basically in a mocking manner. Now going back to Psalm 68... We come to Psalm 68, 17, and 18, and this is, this is what I want to zero in on when we come to Paul's uh, 
verses in Ephesians. In Psalm 17, the psalmist writes, With mighty chariotry, twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands, the Lord came from Sinai into the holy place. Now, this is where I say that the, uh, you know, the, the psalmist isn't talking about uh, the tabernacle. He's talking about Yahweh being enthroned as king over Israel. And so you, you go back and it's like, well, when has that ever happened? It's not really ever happened. You know, you had God in the temple, but he never was reigning as king. He was in the temple. But then what do you have after the crucifixion? You have Rome, uh, Rome take over and destroy the temple. So this is actually a prophecy about the future. This is envisioning Yahweh coming and being enthroned as king. And then listen to what verse 18 says. You ascended the high mount, and that is the king being enthroned, leading captives in your train and receiving gifts from the people, even from those who rebel against the Lord God's abiding there. Now, what's this a picture of? Well, when you go back to ancient history, what would happen is you'd have the invading king come in and liberate the people, liberate the oppressed people, and then he would take his seat upon the throne, and then the oppressors would be paraded before him in humiliation before the people. You know, the oppressor king, his staff, you know, the whole kingdom would be paraded in front of him, uh, leading captives in your train. That's what the psalmist is talking about there. Now, the next line, in receiving gifts from the people, well, the people have been liberated. You know, the kingdom's been liberated from this oppressive ogre, you know? So the people are jubilant, and what would happen is the people would come and adorn their new king with gifts. Basically, it was kind of like a ticker tape parade for the king. You know, we've got a new king. He's righteous. He has liberated us. You know, we have a great future and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's what the psalmist is saying here about Yahweh ascending the high mount. And in fact, he even goes on to say that even those who rebel against the Lord God's abiding there actually come and bring gifts because his victory is so wonderful. It's, you know, they basically have to bow their knee to him. Everybody, even his enemies. Now, that's the context that Paul is reading when he's, uh, or he's reading Psalm 68, and that is the backdrop for what we read in Ephesians. Now, let's go back to Ephesians with all this understanding about Psalm 68. Paul writes in verse 7, But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then uh, Paul actually recasts Psalm 68. And you're going to be surprised at what he does here. He goes on and he says, Therefore it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive, and he gave gifts to his people. Now let's unpack this a minute. He says, when he ascended on high, 
Well, Paul's not talking about God in the, in the Old Testament sense. Well, he is and he isn't. He's not talking about he's not talking about Yahweh in the sense that the psalmist did. You know that he's talking about Jesus. Now think about this a minute of of how he's appropriating Psalm 68 to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and he became a man. The man was resurrected by the Lord, by the Father. And what? He was resurrected and then he ascended. Paul has taken the language of Psalm 68 and taken it from Yahweh in the Old Testament sense and applying it to the Lord Jesus Christ and saying when he ascended on high and he's ascribing enthronement to Jesus. When he ascended on high, it's not just that he ascended, he ascended on high, he became enthroned. And then what about the captives? What about the oppressors? Well, he, he recast Psalm 68 and he says he made captivity itself a captive. He not only took the oppressors captive, he took captivity itself captive. Now this should remind you of Revelation 1. Let me read that to you because this is so cool. Remember John the Revelator has a vision of Jesus. And in chapter 1, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead, and see, I am alive forever and ever. And then get this. He says, And I have the keys of death and Hades. Sounds to me like he is taking captivity captive. I have the keys of death and Hades. Amen. So the wild thing about Psalm 68, if you were a first century Jew, is you no doubt are looking for the enthronement of Yahweh, the way that Psalm 68 prophesies that he's going to be enthroned. What Paul does is he appropriates it to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's read on. And this is where it gets interesting too. Because Paul writes in verse 8, He gave gifts to his people. Now he changes up Psalm 68 right there. And if it weren't Paul the Apostle, we would say, well, you can't do that, Paul, because you are changing Scripture and you can't change Scripture, but he's changing the Scripture. Remember in Psalm 68, the people were so jubilant that, that, what? They brought gifts to the king. They brought gifts to Yahweh because they were liberated. Well, here, Jesus' victory is so complete, so, you know, so supreme, that we don't give gifts to him. He actually gives gifts to us. He gave gifts to his people. Look at the change there. Isn't that cool? Now, question is, what are those gifts? Well, Paul tells us just a couple verses down. Look down at verse 11. He tells us what they are. He says, And the gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, 
some pastors and teachers. These are spiritual giftings. And these are doled out by the Lord Jesus Christ himself after he had ascended on high. What's the purpose of the giftings? Well, Paul tells us in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, you take a look at verse 12 a minute, you know, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Well, turn, around, turn that around a minute. If the gifts were given to build up the body of Christ, if you don't have the gifts, then you have to ask the question, how is the body of Christ going to be built up? Because Christ gave these gifts to build up the body. Now, in a lot of sectors or a lot of parts of the body of Christ, apostles, prophets, apostles, prophets, and even evangelists these days aren't even recognized. It's kind of like they all died out, you know, with, with uh, John the Apostle or something like that. But the context of Ephesians 4 is that Jesus doles these gifts out, gives them to his people generation after generation after generation. What? In order to build up his body, in order to equip the saints. Now you look at the body of Christ today, whereas what? About the only spiritual gift that's recognized today, or the spiritual gifting, is the pastorate. So that kind of begs the question, how is the body of Christ being built up if you only have one of the five gifts that Jesus has given to the body? Thing is, it can't be done. The body of Christ needs all five. Now, one thing about these giftings, notice what they are and then what they're not, and compare it to what we see in the body of Christ today. They are the apostle. And then when you go back to the New Testament, you see that Paul says the signs of an apostle uh, were done among you. You see that they were the prophets. You see a prophet in the book of Acts called Ananias, who prophesied one to Paul about what uh, what happened to Paul, and he also prophesied about a famine coming because that was building up the body of Christ so they could prepare for the famine. Also preparing Paul for what awaited him when he was taken to Jerusalem and also into Rome. <clears throat> Notice that the giftings are not, and he gave some theologians or he gave some masters of divinity or he gave some professional worship leaders, or he gave some gifted communicators, or he gave some Christian leaders, or all those kinds of things that you hear about in the body of Christ today. No, he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and they're spiritual. Now, let me put it this way. You can have an apostle that might have an education, might have a, a THD or a PhD, but a, a PhD or a THD does not an apostle make, if you get that. 
you know, the thing about professional worship leaders, I mean, it's always great to have great songs and things, but they're not part of the giftings, not part of the spiritual giftings that are building up the body of Christ. And what is building up the body of Christ? Well, part of it is opening up the eyes so people can understand what, if, what is the hope of the Lord's calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That is part of what the giftings do, and that comes from Ephesians 1. Notice also that the giftings don't involve some kind of corporate entity. You know, in America, we like hierarchies. We like, you know, top pastors, assistant pastors, and all these underling things and all that kind of stuff. And we like the corporate form, but the giftings involve individuals. And one thing that a lot of people don't, wouldn't like about this or don't like about this is that it's not based upon merit. The Lord chooses whom he chooses. And as king, he has a rightful place to do that. And really, there's no questioning uh, his judgment on it. And there's no way to take a personality test. There's no way to take a merit test to say, okay, well, I'm going to see if I can make it to be an apostle or make it to be a prophet. No, these callings are without repentance, and they are to whom he gives them. But it's all for the building up of the body of Christ. They are not job titles, they are spiritual giftings. You know, just because somebody goes out and makes a business card and calls himself an apostle does not mean that he's an apostle. When you go through the book of Acts in the New Testament, you see that there are spiritual manifestations that accompany each of these giftings more so than the others. You know, when Paul says the signs of an apostle have been done among you, you know, that's where the Corinthians and the Christians can take a look and say, oh yeah, he is an apostle. Paul was also a prophet and he was a teacher. What's interesting is he doesn't call himself a pastor. Amen. So the, the purpose of these giftings is to build up the body of Christ. Now, if, if the church is only concentrating with one, then, then the body's not being built up the way that it needs to be. <coughs> so here what you see, you know, today we have what I call the uber pastors. You know, they are kind of like the gatekeeper um, of all the ministry going to the body of Christ. You don't see any more itinerant preachers. You don't see any more prophets. You don't see any more evangelists. Hopefully in the future, you know, we'll get back to the scriptural model because when you follow the scriptural model, that's when the body is built up the best. So that is pretty much the message when it comes to spiritual giftings that we had on the, on the plate today. Um, you see that the New Testament is deep. You know, there is some talk in the body now that uh, we're in the New Testament and therefore we don't have anything to do with the Old Testament. We can disregard the Old Testament. Well, you see right here that Paul, as the New Testament apostle, did not ignore the Old Testament. In fact, 
the Old Testament is the structure or the foundation upon which the superstructure of the New Testament is founded. And you see that with how he takes Psalm 68 and he recasts it in light of Jesus' ascension up to the right hand of the Father. Amen. And you see him do that throughout all his letters in the New Testament. And what it does is that it gives us a deep faith. It's not just a one-off thing or something off the top of his head, but it actually goes back thousands of years, and you see that we are walking in the fulfillment of it. So cool. So let me end uh, the message today with a, with a benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, make you complete in every good so that you may do his will, working among us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.